Hey, welcome to this 35th edition of Clarity Chat. I have with me Sankarson Banerjee, CIO of RBL Bank, adorably known as Sankey. Our discussion with Sankey today will focus on his experiences of managing change in the high volume, high criticality, low latency operations of a stock exchange. He has been an early catcher of waves and we will discuss pros, cons and learnings from being the first mover. We will also talk about cyclothons, managing change in pandemic and not just adopting but transforming during a crisis. His biggest leadership philosophy is keep trying your hand for new challenges and it's reflected in his diverse career. This is the 35th episode of Clarity Chat podcast and here comes an exciting discussion with Sankey, CIO of RBL Bank. Welcome Sankey. Did you know that 83% of technology implementations fail to achieve expected business outcomes? Well, managing technology is incredibly complex. IT covers all processes and everything IT does impacts people in some way. The function is only three decades old, but changing at the fastest pace. Technology industry is highly profitable with intense marketing. Tech companies have the vast majority of the tech talent, not you. Clarity Chat purpose is rooted in helping you solve IT challenges for business success, to help you decode the complexity, to help you leverage partners effectively, to help you partner with business more effectively, to help you manage change better, to help you attract talent. You get this clarity via experiences of CIOs and business leaders shared informally and candidly over a cup of tea. Welcome to the Clarity Chat podcast. You shared with me a fun story about Tata Motors. So why don't you tell our audience what happened uh, with Tata Motors? Well, the story was actually not about Tata Motors per se. You know, I used to be in Tata IBM and this was my first job. I was an intern. Uh, I had just joined Tata IBM and I joined in the internal support group. They called it the IS. And, uh, you know, this was 80, no, sorry, 1995, maybe 96. And uh, IBM had just come out with this super powerful 5 lakh rupee laptop, which had voice recognition and all that stuff. And 5 lakh rupees was a humongous amount of money in 95, you know. Those days, uh, a Maruti Zen used to cost about 3 lakhs. So you can imagine how much money a 5 lakh rupee laptop was. So, and my salary, yearly salary was up like maybe two or something, forget. But definitely a lot less than that laptop. And so only three laptops came. One for Ratan Tata, one for that time the head of India was a guy called John Whiting, a head of Tata IBM India. And one for Mr. Gandhi in Telco. Those days it was Telco. So these three laptops came and they came to internal support team and, uh, you know, Voice recognition in those days was largely hype. It didn't work very well. You had to do, you had to keep repeating phrases and all that. And generally, it was very troublesome laptop. So, uh, Mr. Jahangir Gandhi's laptop kept coming back. So, finally, they said, why don't you, since you have done most of the experimentation with the laptops, why don't you take the laptop to Mr. Gandhi's office and figure out what is going wrong? So, I went and, you know, me, intern, Tata IBM, Mr. Gandhi. 
Uh, calls me, no problem, come in, come in. Ha, gives two, three minutes of conversation. After a while, he tells me rather kindly, see, this laptop is much too complicated for me. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just that every time I start using it, somebody gives me an instruction manual. So I say, so why don't you keep it? As in, you take the laptop back. I don't really need it. You know, company You keep it. And so I kept the laptop. And you know, it was quite amazing how nice the man was. He spent like 10-15 minutes with me, gave me some career advice, generally made me feel very, because I was really nervous, you know, first first job, first time I'm going to meet somebody who is the head of a very large company. And uh, so then I came back and everybody said, ha, okay, hai, bola hai, to you only carry the laptop. Nobody else wanted to carry it because so I kept carrying the laptop. So for more than half my career, I had India's most expensive laptop. Wow. So you carried a laptop which was like maybe two and a half times your salary. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to, you know, not tell anybody because, you know, <laughs> you don't want to invite trouble. You know, actually, you know, uh, uh, I don't think I told you this, but I was in the construction equipment business of uh, Tata Motors and Mr. Uh, Saroj Gandhi was our executive director uh-huh. and he once came to Hyderabad and uh, you know I basically narrated something to him which I didn't really feel good about. So you know our service engineers used to go out in the field and in the hot sun the daily allowance that they had they couldn't afford uh, you know an AC room okay. So someone just jokingly told me that you know we actually go to a centralized AC uh, hotel and we sleep with our doors open so that the you know the corridor cool air comes in and i i actually was very embarrassed because you know not for some something like tata motors and i very passionately told mr gandhi about this incident and i said sir this is not done i mean you know we carry a brand and all that and the next thing that uh, instruction that came after after a month or so was that the travel policy was changed and they said that you know whatever it costs a minimum of AC room for uh, our service engineers. Mm-hmm. He was a, he was an amazing man. So I have my personal experience with him. But thanks for sharing that, uh, Anki. And I also want one more thing. That, yeah. you know, just because a device is high-tech does not mean it is useful. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so I can, I can now say that, you know, I can add to your early adopter uh, a, a high-tech laptop as well, not just uh, internet and mobility, but we will come to that. So uh, Shanky, uh, you know, your, your philosophy is really inspiring. Keep trying your hand for new challenges, catch the waves early, learn and move on wiser. Maybe you may make more mistakes and that's truly reflected in your diverse career. So we'll go through the insights. Uh, now, you know, we have uh, CXOs, founders, IT managers, and technology industry folks in our audience uh, with a common agenda, which is learning the art of finding success with technology. Let's try to look through the, you know, lens of your journey, you know, just to give a mind map to people as to, you know, what all you have done, where all you have been, uh, what kind of landscape you have covered. So, uh, so, but first thing, where you come from. So a quick recap of your childhood, a two minute recap of your childhood. Um, did you ever dream of like, you know, making a career in IT or doing something with technology? So my childhood was, I grew up in a town called Asunsol, uh, which is, okay. you know, the heart of the coal belt. It is halfway between Raniganj and Jhadiya, which are the two major colliery areas. And is the headquarters of BCCL and all that. 
and uh, therefore as far from high tech as you can imagine you know coal and steel this was the main thing about asansol uh, so i grew up in that area but um, we had very good schools the reason i grew up in asansol was because my parents shifted because the schools were very good asansol is some of the best schools in the country there are around 35 large schools including the first christian brothers school the first uh, loreto the first this first that and huge old school 120 my school is about 130 something years old so i had a very good education and a very good time you know we had football fields that stretch from horizon to horizon so we could really play football in a full size field every day and thing like that so i had a great childhood um my computer fascination started when rajiv gandhi started distributing computers to schools oh uh, there was these bbc computers that uh, got distributed to all the schools and my mother was a teacher so actually she was one of the teachers who was supposed to teach computers and it my mother you know got interested learned it is that but all the study material came to me and i was a lot more interested and you know so i fooled around with it i learned quite a bit bbc micro access was quite powerful and i learned quite a bit of it and i started teaching it pocket money that's how i funded a lot of my you know teenage years acquisitions including a bicycle you know i had a relatively wow. fancy bicycle for my age then i bought gears separately for it and learned how to fit those gears uh, there was no internet in those days so you had to go to a library to learn how to do computers and uh, so i did a lot of that and that is really where my fascination with computers started and i went to iit which was full of computers and iit kharagpur had this unique thing there was actually just one prof Uh, who started the trend he left his computer science he was from mechanical and they had a computer science laboratory which they left open for any student for whatever reason to come and use no permission required no registration required no nothing you know if you wanted it and there was a computer free you could just sit and start using it this was very unique no other iit had this and even in our own iit very few departments had this eventually other departments started opening up like this and it was fantastic you know that room was always full of people who was fooling around with computers and when you fool around with things you learn things a lot i mean you learn of course not necessarily in a structured way but you learn a lot more than just sitting in class and so that was the real thrust of my computer education i learned how to do a lot of things you know even to hack systems do 3d wow. graphics all kinds of things no that's interesting in fact uh, you know by the time i came to college we had a computer science building you know which was again open all the time and you could go and like you know just go with your floppy box and uh, start doing something and so i think they they picked up something from iit kharagpur which was good i was in mechanical but i started going to the computer science lab uh, in the second year itself uh, by the way asansol i've got a personal uh, you know uh, experience of asansol one of the first 65 ton machines of uh tata hitachi was came to asansol for uh, a trial with uh, with coal india and uh, there was nobody who was trained in that except me so i came all the way from hyderabad and stayed in asansol for 15 days oh, okay had wow. a bit of had a had a bit of an experience of what it means to be in the heart of cpim controlled neighborhoods <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i monitored that machine for about 15 days while others were getting trained so that was a personal experience then you know coming to the other one you know when you try to when you uh, fool around with technology you learn faster so i think there was a story that you know some 
MPs were struggling, you know, in getting trained for the computer, and somebody managed to send a expletive written, uh, expletive uh, written message to another one. Okay, and then they quickly learned how to send those send those mails to each other. <laughs> yeah. So, Nancy, uh, for instance, we used to encourage people to learn computers. Many of many people came from backgrounds where they had never seen a computer. This was, of course, my generation because now everybody has seen a computer. But in IMC ninety four, ninety three to ninety five, there were lots of students who had never seen a computer before they came to IMC, and we had to encourage them to use it. And they were very scared of, you know, if I press this button, what happens? The whole thing blows up. So we started encouraging games, uh, you know, computer yeah. games, and people, of course, got quite a few people got fascinated by it. and eventually they had to learn how to run the computer to get to the game and they learned enough Absolutely. of it to get by in life i mean that was actually we realized that adoption you can't really control adoption by saying i will only allow you to do it this way yeah absolutely adoption has to happen by taking something that the person likes and letting him discover the path to whatever he is absolutely so we have to take the scare part of it away we have to make it fun we have to yeah. make it a little more engaging right. and all So, uh, Shanky, I've got lots and lots of questions for you. So, the next question, please be a little quick because then we go deep dive yeah. into the next set of questions. Sure. So, so tell us, a, give us a little bit of a you know a journey map of like you know uh, which organizations you worked in uh, and you know how that journey has been, and maybe you know like one highlight of each of those organizations because we'll get into the details. That later. is not a short question. I moved around a lot. I know. I know. Every time I, I get bored in three to five years, so I move every three to five years. So first was IBM. You know, IBM was first job out of campus, and I, in fact, I done my summer training in IBM. They'd given me a pre-placement offer, and uh, this was uh, so IBM was the first large multinational in India, the first large compute multinational in India. That used to come to IBM. So it was a very different experience in those days. Firstly, it wasn't IBM in those days. It was Tata Information Systems Limited, a joint venture between Tata and IBM. And uh, but it was largely run by IBM, and it had a very unique culture in the sense that it has these giant desks. It has very luxurious offices, even for juniors. It had free coffee, all the stuff that you think of in US offices. It had here, and it was quite the experience. We used to call it a five-star coffee shop. Yeah. And uh, what I really learned. you know we did a lot of things in ibm but one of the things i learned was ibm taught me how to speak to really senior people like saroj gandhi was the first experience but ibm as a policy sent juniors to talk to sin to really senior guys as long as the junior knows what he's doing so Absolutely. i ended up and I, i be having you know two years out of college having a relationship with many of the cios of bombay the cios in those days some of wow. whom actually are still around today but uh, many of them i I mean, I used to directly interact with them, not interact with them as part of some team. And this was something I am taught me that you know, if you are, if you know what you're doing and you're sincere and uh, this thing, no matter how senior the guy, he will interact with you on his level. He will not say, "Arey, the junior is ko kuch pata nahi hai." Senior guys actually don't say that. It is the juniors who feel that really, it will get started. Yeah, that's right. But, that's but right. you have to also have be prepared, have the courage, you know, respect them and so on. and that was a yeah. big learning you know um it was a big learning that many other companies did not give my peers absolutely absolutely so yeah, that so was one very valuable part of it uh then ibm say i moved to a startup you know by then we had done a lot of internet work for ibm so the internet wave had started when i joined ibm 
I had learned a little bit of the internet in IIT because, uh, you know, Unix machines and uh, TCP IP networking. IBM had no idea of internet in those days. IBM was uh, system network architecture, mainframes, did not connect to anything public. And so I, you know, I found a lot of things to do in IBM simply because nobody else knew. My batch, the people who joined with me knew. And so we ended up doing a lot of different things as across the globe in IBM. And so I used that knowledge to do a startup. It was an e-commerce startup, did very well for a while. Uh, then, of course, the dot-com bust came and we kind of got busted at the same time. So then I joined a VC, worked with the VC for a couple of years, uh, worked with the telecom startup that the VC had invested in. That was my primary activity. And, you know, we grew the telecom startup a little bit. And then I left that telecom startup because it got acquired. I left that telecom startup and joined Emphasis. Emphasis in those days, this was very early days of Emphasis, just after they'd acquired BFM. They used to focus in the US, and I joined Emphasis in the US itself. Uh, they used to focus in the US solely on internet-based projects. They controlled projects, they didn't have any uh, you know, implementation projects or anything. Their primary focus was web-based projects, Java, HTML, JavaScript, all that. And they used to sell this to companies as their niche area of expertise, which of course suited me fine. I loved the internet. And so we did some very interesting projects there, including one project for JP Morgan called Docs, uh, Document Management, something like that. I forgot about the story. I mean, why the name Docs? But uh, Docs was one of the world's largest Ajax projects in those days. This was before jQuery had been built, before, uh, you know, Google Maps was eventually in the flagship Ajax project. But this was before Google Maps. This was 2002, three times, two, three times, where barely anybody knew anything about Ajax. So, you know, we took this brave step of, Again, I had learned how to speak to really senior people by then. So I told them, you know, this is the technology that's going to change the world and trust us, we will deliver it. And luckily I had good people under me. So we did deliver it because I didn't do any other programming, but we delivered it. It ran to nine versions all the way wow. till I think 2015 or something before they discontinued. So it was a very successful project for us. Yeah, And it was then, personally also yeah. very enriching. It was a technology that nobody had uh, thought about expanding. And then I joined, uh, so I left Emphasis just at the point when Emphasis got sold to EDS. But I left for a totally different reason. I came back to renew my visa. I met Kishore Biani by accident. Kishore Biani said, I'm launching e-commerce. I need a CEO. Why don't you join? And it was a 10-minute conversation. At the end of 10 minutes, he said, I'm calling up my head of HR. You tell him how much you want. <laughs> it literally went like that. I thought he was joking. I met the head of HR next day. He says, ah, you know, the... Tell me what the number is. I'll write it in the letter and here's the letter. And M was furious. He said, you must have engineered this to go back to India. So <laughs> I said, no, I said, I really went back to renew my visa. But so I went back, then wrapped up and came back to Future Group. Future Group was a very good ride. I mean, we did very well in e-commerce for three years. We were by far the largest e-commerce in those days. But of course, Future Group had its own challenges. They ran into the dot-com, the... The Lehman Brothers bust hit them very badly. So we wrapped up all these businesses, the non-core businesses at that time. And so then I exited. And uh, so then I started doing a regular CIO role. So IFL, NSE, RBL Bank. Uh, but in each of these roles, I mean, there was something. IFL, for instance, we did the world's largest, in those days, one of the world's largest Google migrations. This was 2009 or 10. We did 20,000 users to Google work. Now it is called Google 
suite. That time it was called Google Apps. So we took 20,000 users and moved to Google Apps. It was one of the world's largest implementations of, in those days, of Google Apps. This was before Office 365, before uh, uh, many of the other things. So, and this, of course, uh, partly it was me being brave, but a large part of it was, in those days, my boss, Nirmal Jain, being brave. Nirmal Jain is, you know, he's a very tough man to work with, but he has these leaps of intuition that if you follow and execute on, is actually great fun. So. So we did that. That was my biggest achievement in IFL. Plus, we did a few other things. And mm -hmm. in Accenture, I did uh, I helped launch Hotstar. I did a lot of work on digital banks for a few banks, especially for DBS in uh, in India. And uh, that was quite satisfying. NSC, NSC was probably the most unusual of my jobs in the sense that it had nothing to do with the internet. Uh, NSC is a very uh, unique organization because it's one very few Indian companies that handle really, really humongous problems. I mean, today there are many like Zomato or Paytm or, uh, you know, uh, Flipkart and all that all handle humongous volumes. In those days, these volumes were, I mean, NSC was a hundred times the size of the next guy. They were doing, when I joined them, they were doing about a billion transactions a day, a B with a B. And now they're doing close to 8 billion with a B again. Wow. Huh, how much is that? Visa, Mastercard do eight billion a year, so and so very few. I mean, NEC is by far the largest exchange in some of these, uh, like the world's largest commodity exchange. In those days, it was the world's third largest commodity exchange. So it is a very different challenge, and it's an engineering challenge because many of the systems were operating at their physical limits to run these volumes. Wow. NSE also has requirements that are quite unique because the reliability requirements of NSE are significantly higher than the reliability requirements of a standard business. There is no That's fail, true. there is no retry, it is extremely real time. It is nanosecond real time, almost. In our time, it was 80 microseconds. So, wow. and now it's become faster, I believe. But so it is genuinely real time. Unlike when we say real time in banking, we mean milliseconds, which, you know, is not even remotely real time. Absolutely. Uh, so, so that those challenges were very interesting engineering challenges and they took me back to some of the core stuff that I had actually learned in college that we were putting in place you know how to manipulate memory directly how to you know how to optimize pretty much every clock cycle of a cpu because that was the kind of hardware and dependency plus there was a lot of risk management that i learned at nc you know how do you manage risk at that extreme uh, speed so that was uh, an rbl bank has been a journey of digital transformation, especially cloud. We were one of the few banks finally went with production into cloud, as in migrate to cloud. And a few banks that were born in the cloud, like uh, Bandhan Bank was a cloud bank. But most banks were very fearful of taking the step from WAT to production. So when I, and I had spent a lot of time on the cloud already. So I was more confident of doing it. And then we did it very fast. We did 40 applications, which is about 20% of my landscape in 40 days. No, absolutely. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a great journey. I, you know, that's like, you know, a true technologist journey, um, uh, playing a CEO role, playing a CIO role, playing a consultant role. So I think, I think quite a diverse experience. So let me now rise a little bit, uh, higher level and like, you know, let's, let's talk about some of these experiences. So see, uh, you've been an early catcher of waves, you know, like, you know, the first laptop, <laughs> the first in the, I mean, being first on the internet, on the mobile and cloud. So. Let's talk about being an early catcher of waves. So what is the mindset working behind it? You know, whether it's internet, mobile, cloud, what's the thought process 
going through your mind you know so in any anybody in our audience you know if he thinks that you know generally we look at these new trends with a bit of a risk or a bit of incredulity so what is what is what is going through your mind when you are looking at being a recatcher so one of the main things is to not look at the risk of it i mean you of course recognize there is a risk but the main point of uh, of any technology is is there enough potential if there is enough potential the risk will be worth it there's risk in crossing the road you know at the moment my eye is bad i have a very high risk of crossing the road so obviously you know there is risk in everything and you trade off is is it worth crossing the road and that's the real thing about early waves you know the internet one one of course i was exposed to it far earlier than most other people so other people had invested a lot in the pre internet world the private networks world and i am in particular was full of people who had in, spent their entire life on private net and so so they didn't see why internet was worth it and therefore it was an opportunity for me and a few others like a few other friends of mine who thought the internet was the greatest thing on earth especially because we had experimented with it and we quickly realized what its potential was even something like an email ibm did not use internet based uh, you know lotus notes based email till much later in life i mean when i joined they were using mainframe based email and people used to keep justifying why that was great and we quickly realized that there are yes there are risks to it it is not you know it's not as easy as mainframe based email but there's humongous advantage to it and that is the that is the way we rode and other people also started realizing this advantage you know e-commerce started flourishing all that came to fruition because of that web technologies but yeah. uh, you know so that's the first thing about riding a wave you must first see what the gains are otherwise the wave is not worth it you know but if you first see what the risks are you will never notice the gain absolutely absolutely and especially if you you know especially if you have already invested in something else that's the you know people tend to justify their existing stance by saying the other way is too risky absolutely. it took a long time for even to you know i keep giving this example of shopping carts the physical shopping carts you know you you see them everywhere now to the point where e-commerce uses that as their symbol right but it took a year for the ex- inventor of the physical shopping cart to get it adopted everybody had a reason why it was risky you know or or whatever not worth adopting same with tech cars you know it took in new york almost 5 years before they shifted from horse car taxis to mobile taxis to to phys- automobile taxis because the cars were very risky you know people will die and this and that but you know horses have a lot of other problems so those things are what you have to recognize that there is a risk of course but if you keep looking at the risk you will never move what you yeah. have to look first is yeah. the benefits absolutely and so i basically became part of three waves you know the internet wave the mobility wave and the cloud wave and uh, you know all three of them of course i i kind of stumbled on them it's not that you put a lot of thought into saying i will ride this wave usually doesn't happen because you don't really know which one is a wave some of them like blockchain i spent a lot of time investing understanding blockchain it hasn't taken off as a wave as much as it was maybe now with central digital currency it will take off and hopefully i'll do something with it but you have to keep trying out things you know you don't know which one is the wave absolutely absolutely so 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 shanki you know let me kind of summarize this part of the discussion so what you're saying is that the three two or three messages i picked up so the number one is that every new thing comes with its opportunity and the fears you should be looking at the opportunity and you know build your use cases on it and then you know anyway once it goes into production you will have to anyway take care of the risks so, but so don't, don't start with the risks but don't start with the risk don't start with the risk and i think and i think this is as true in life you know i mean even 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 you know like getting a new job or going to a new city 
or buying a new house, everything will carry its uh, share of risks and opportunities. So start with opportunity first. The second message that I picked is, uh, and you, you didn't say it in so many words, but I'm kind of gathering it as the audience is also gathering it. Keep experimenting, keep experimenting, because unless you dirty your hands, you will not really understand the opportunity. In fact, you know, let me give you my example. I always looked at this uh, VR with a bit of like, you know, what is it? And I think once I wore a, you know, headset and, and, and started looking at like, you know, some of the things like, you know, how you can go into different terrains and all of that, uh, I kind of realized the, you know, the, the power of it. Right. So, uh, so that's the second thing. And, uh, I think the, the third thing, uh, which I picked up is that the success is outside of the comfort zone. Like, you know, I mean, you know, you're mainframe based email or you know whatever you are already doing that's a comfort zone you don't really have to do anything to sustain it right but to do something different you will have to come out of it make some extra effort maybe take some risks and and that's where the success will lie thanks for that shanky and uh, yeah so you did really talk about my next question was about nse so you did really talk about like you know managing at a different scale but is there like one particular incident about let's say managing this uh, big infrastructure uh, you know, which comes to your mind. Let me, let me, let me ask that question to you, which is a curiosity for me. You know, these, <laughs> I remember when we used to upgrade or like, you know, do any kind of version change in our infrastructure, we would send out a notice that, you know, there's a downtime and all that. But I don't think in, in NSE kind of infrastructure, you can take a downtime. So how did you manage your upgrades at, so, at, at that know, kind of scale of You know, we used to face this challenge of upgrade. We always face, there's always some challenge of upgrades. And NSE used to spend maybe once a year, they would do an up. And, uh, you know, as in the modern world, that, you know, it became once a quarter that people would publish upgrades. But in the recent times, last five or six years, maybe the last 10 years, upgrades have come thick and fast. I mean, and you can't really keep avoiding them, especially the security patches. So NSE, yeah. that's one of the things. We were not original systems. We were not geared to applying these upgrades. And therefore, after a while, we realized our systems are becoming riskier, riskier, riskier. To the point where the downtime that we saved by not upgrading would all go away because the thing failed because of some obsolete function. So we had to plan around how to upgrade without downtime. And remember, this is not a, uh, an internet system with uh, horizontal scalability. So you bring one machine down and upgrade it while the others are running. So we therefore had to figure out how to do up upgrades and which upgrades to do which therefore, and we, we had, you know, the average number of security patches are in tens of thousands a year. So we had to do that many uh, upgrades or at least patch applications without shaking the system up. So that's one of the things we learned, you know, the earlier uh, patches, the reason this slow process was put in place was because the earlier patches used to have a lot of system impact. You know, you applied a patch, big things would go wrong. But today that is not the case. Like, you know, most applications, like even your operating system nowadays gets patched invisibly. You know, the entire 50 million people who use Windows are not told when Windows is patching itself. Or your mobile phone apps get patched invisibly, like Facebook patches in the background every 15 days to all their billion odd users. And so that was the first revelation that patching happens without telling users because nothing goes wrong. Patches have become a lot more reliable. The trick, therefore, is to make sure that the reliable patches, we also patch transparently without telling users, without going through the downtime, without going through the ceremony of patching. We do the ceremony only when we know it's a risky patch, which usually the operating system guys are very careful to outline because they are also worried about getting sued. 
so they are very careful to outline that this is a risky patch don't do it unless you do some things and so that's what we started doing i mean it was a simple shift because we were applying the thinking of 20 25 years ago and every patch was high risk activity therefore had to be tested and you know long periods of this thing and often long outages today patches actually don't require downtime so but we didn't factor those things into our calculations and that's one of the biggest things i learned that in a moving car you often have the assumptions that were built in when the car started moving not the assumptions of today and it's often yeah. hard to see beyond it because you're part of the moving car you think this is how it is and you argue at the edges you argue about making patching faster rather than rethinking the process and under- rethinking the assumption yeah yeah no but i think, I think it, I... it saved us of the order of 6 7 crores worth of manual effort this yeah. particular mechanism in patching where we apply operating system patches unless it tells us it's critical and needs to be separately tested we apply it in the background and almost yeah. none of them require restart so we apply it without a restart and i think i think i think all the you know the the infrastructure automation that has come in the devops research that have come in that also make it far more reliable and far more automated yeah. to be correct that's the other thing you know we use devops to do instant secure. rollback correct so we do devops to do instant rollback that made our life so much easier apply the patch if something goes wrong press a button it will roll back correct. which again uh, you know the technology has become mature and you know therefore there's no problem taking advantage of it absolutely it happens absolutely. even on your laptop I mean, the technology actually is far from. I mean, it's come to the point where my mother can do it on yeah, her no, laptop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it happens in the background. You don't even come to know of it, you yeah. know. And you the rollback also. Even my mother can do the rollback. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Hey, I am your podcast host, Jagdish Belwal. I had a rich career as CIO at Tata Motors and GE. Now, as an advisor, I help organizations transform with technology. technology is necessary for digital transformation but not sufficient so i help organizations with the rest of it leadership strategy culture change management etc you can connect with me on linkedin and twitter for now keep listening and don't forget to subscribe the podcast and do connect with me on linkedin so uh, uh, shanki uh, you know adjacent to this question about like you know managing a mission critical infrastructure keeping a very high uptime and all comes the next question of like you know cybersecurity now you have handled you know those assignments or in you have been working in those industries which are very very mission critical like you can't afford you can't afford a cyber attack you will lose business so so how do you how do you manage uh, cybersecurity how do you keep yourself safe some thoughts on that and maybe like you know yeah. a case study both capital markets and uh, banks are quite uh, sensitive to cybersecurity capital markets because nsc used to be a national symbol so it would get attacked all the time including by state led actors and you know we had ridiculous situations like once bangladesh lost a test match so some bangladeshi hackers decided to make an example out of india luckily and they tried nsc they tried times of india they tried a few other things luckily i mean we survived all that but for instance we had state level actors try and attack us and uh, so therefore you have to work the reputational sensitivity of nsc was very high in addition to the business loss you know nsc coming down is a national disaster banks have less reputational sensitivity but their financial sensitivity is significantly higher than nsc absolutely because there is a lot of money involved and uh, you know uh, like we discovered in the bangladesh case you can steal a lot of money if you hack well 
even for a small bank you know it doesn't matter what size the bank is even a small bank has a lot of money relative to so therefore both in banking and in capital markets see cyber security became particularly important and uh, one of the things we learned was one of course there is no end to the number of threats you will face you will constantly face new threats and hackers are smarter than you they will constantly keep trying things so there are two things one simplify your own network you know the best way to protect something is to have fewer things to protect one because your resources are limited and secondly no matter how much how many resources you have it is not possible to protect a large number of endpoints very large number of rules. so in, we had an expert from israel come and give us a lot of advice in nsc we paid a you know, fair amount of money to get that kind of advice and one of the first things he said is you must reduce your firewall rules we had about 2000 firewalls he said you must get it down to 100 it is better to have a broader rule that you can monitor well than to have a narrow rule that you cannot monitor he says if you have 2000 rules i can guarantee you there is a rule there that you do not know about and so a hacker will either find such a rule or insert his own such rule and you will not know about it for years wow so this is and you know, he's like i mean i keep giving this example in indian terms it's like merangar fort you know merangar fort was one of the few forts in rajasthan that never actually got conquered rajasthan rajputs weren't very good at defending forts they used to keep losing to you know alauddin khilji and this and that they got conquered a lot merangar was one of the few forts that almost never got conquered because it had one door and it had this one single path up the hill and that's the only thing they had to protect as opposed to others where there were either multiple doors often four five doors char darwaza or multiple paths to that fort yeah yeah and uh, so shivaji's forts were also built like that much later they were built to be very inaccessible except through this one single path and Absolutely. they are very easy to protect you know they are very low tech to protect and that's what he was essentially telling us that you build a small number of rules and you watch them very carefully you build a small number of things so the first thing you have to do is remove complexity because complexity is a hacker's dream or any violator's dream the remove the number of interactions you have you know even if you ask three security question that is actually three opportunities for a hacker to understand what you're doing so thing like that try and make it invisible understand his behavior do it in the background it's very hard to pull the analytics if you ask questions then somebody can answer the question by knowing the answer by figuring out what the answer is whereas if you do by analytics then it's very hard for the hacker to anticipate that and figure it out which Absolutely. is why many of these things like uh, you know the that captcha check is a lot more secure than a two factor so no, those were the lessons and we took it to heart it also reduces the effort because you know a complex security environment is actually pretty impossible for any company of any moderate size to manage you know you just don't have that many security professionals you just don't have that many uh, that much skill you know to really high end expert people and so it becomes a you know it becomes a system with a lot of holes that you you think you are comfortable with because you don't know about them yeah no i think so, i think i think I, yeah sorry yeah. sorry go ahead so that is the main thing i learned you know to the main thing about cyber security is one is don't trust anybody second is keep your system as simple as possible yeah yeah it looks like yeah. more rules is better control but actually that is you know it's poorer control yeah no i think i think i think some really uh, good insights there you know keep it simple uh, keep it manageable you know uh, manageable i mean it shouldn't become so complex that you yourself don't know about it you yourself cannot manage it but i think 
that's a that's a that's a that's a great insight uh, shanky there what is your personal thesis on the rise of indian fintech ecosystem drivers traction innovation and so on how does the future look like so if you can make it a make it a rapid fire maybe give you know like a top level thoughts that will be great because i have yeah. i have quite a bit of stuff left for you too many thoughts is you know fintech the big challenge is you must uh, there's a lot of technology out there that does indeed solve problems but not every problem is worth solving in the sense that people may not want to pay for that solution and therefore you must be you, finally fintech has to become a real business so you must be conscious of what problems are worth solving and the second is that you know fintechs a lot of fintechs do very interesting work and then they stumble at the regulatory end of it so especially because fin is so heavily regulated unlike tech you must be conscious of the fact that you might hit a regulatory wall right in the beginning and therefore fat in that's my things about text a lots of interesting text and my my favorite texts are the ones that not the ones that go for the gold but the ones that build the shovels that other people buy to go for the gold. absolutely so that is my input into the fintech world which i find very some of them are excellent fintechs so there's another question for you here uh, uh, shanky which is about your views on devops or sre so i am a very very strong proponent of devops and we should definitely unfortunately i have found that the adoption of devops is harder than i thought again this is the shift from traditional you know people end up saying devops but what they do is a faster version of their old system um all manual steps and all that just you know they speed it up and uh, you know devops has become very mature and i have grown up in the devops world because i spent i started doing e-commerce quite early and started doing cloud and startups quite early so we adopted devops because it was greenfield i mean that was the thing to adopt and therefore i did not realize how difficult the change management is but we find that you know even though today devops tools are extremely mature and you as a long term devops practitioner know that the value is immense but you always find why are not why are people not adopting it why do most companies in india not have mature devops and uh, i realized that this change management is much harder than it looks yeah no absolutely absolutely so uh, there's another uh, question here on uh, what are your views on protecting east west traffic and especially in hyperscaler environment so you know i think of east west traffic largely you know you have to segment it as far away as possible so each application essentially should think of the cloud as its own so don't do east west even between applications why are you doing east west in a normal lan environment east west is an optimization method east west is cheaper than going through the internet in the cloud that is not necessarily true east west is no cheaper than going over the internet so if you do uh, this is one of those things every application should be in its own segment where the only east west traffic is between the application's own servers and there you can you know because it's completely isolated you can remove most of the barriers and then everything becomes an north south no east west on physical networks east west is very important because otherwise you'd have a very inefficient uh, mechanism Absolutely. but in the cloud especially on the cloud um and especially on hyperscaler east west is actually all virtual there is no actual east west or north south this is all virtual absolutely so uh, let me bring in the next question what are what are your views regarding ai adoption in cybersecurity and large bfsi domain so ai in cybersecurity is very mature especially in the prediction models for fraud for malicious activity for behavioral analytics but i have two caveats one is be careful of inventing your own ai you know your own models 
AI models are much harder and I am as a mathematician can tell you this for sure AI models are much harder to make reliable reliable doesn't mean failure which means the prediction is of good quality it's very hard to do that you know even big AI experts have failed in doing it models tend to work for a certain set and then fail catastrophically or they tend to work for a certain set realize suddenly they were extremely biased you know happened to chatbots they were very abusive or they started recognizing all dark skinned people as villains and things like that and uh, you know in a production system that extreme catastrophic misbehavior can be very expensive so take well uh, well tested well highly adopted ai models as your base rather than trying to build a model and the Absolutely. second is especially in cyber security because you realize the guys on the other side are trying to game the very models that you're trying to build so um, and the other is that uh, ai in particular the quality of data is important not everybody has good data to feed feed into an ai model so i would buy an ai model and then spend a lot of time understanding if my data is clean enough and random enough you know banks for instance have this problem they use ai models for uh evaluation of loan uh, you know whether it's a person is eligible for a loan or not but you know this one professor pointed out to us in a forum we have no data of uh, of people who defaulted because we don't give loans to people who default so we don't know what causes a default we have actually only very biased data we give loans to a certain kind of people and therefore you know it's like if you're standing in a pizza line i'll serve you a pizza but you're anyway standing in the pizza line so we don't know whether the rest of the world likes pizza or not yeah absolutely absolutely and that's the challenge you see we have a very biased data set without realizing it i'm telling you we realized it when uh, when somebody on the, on a public forum came and said your data set is biased yeah no actually uh, yeah. you know bias bias in ai is a big subject in itself so maybe some no, other no, time uh... you don't know how to do bias in ai that is what you have to be careful of right. people think that their yeah. data is not biased so do some r&d for you Absolutely. Before you put faith in it, that uh, betting on no, no, absolutely, absolutely. So we have. Uh, we but have sorry, about... one last. But yeah. at the same time, AI has indeed become very powerful. So once yeah. you get these two things, please do bet your business on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, keep experimenting, as your earlier yeah. discussion, right? Yeah. Correct. So we have a couple of people joining from uh, Middle East. We have Syed Sul joining from Saudi, and we have the Tethre joining from Oman. and uh, maybe let me take one uh, last question on uh, uh, from sayer uh, on what is the status of cyber security in bitcoin world what if this gets hacked and it's not approved by any governing body i think i think you can do make it a rapid fire uh, shanky yeah, because bitcoin, i've got some other bitcoin itself uh, the blockchain is not hackable in that sense it's double encrypted and so on so forth and people have tried for ages and nobody's been able to hack it if somebody does then we everybody's screwed what gets hacked are the banks you know the bitcoin the exchanges so it's like currency is hard to fake but you can always steal the money from a bank and that is what happens again and again with with bitcoin there are many banks or exchanges that are not particularly secure and people steal tokens from the exchange yeah. and if you do get token it doesn't matter whether it's approved by any government governing body or not it is stolen it is stolen is lost to you absolutely it's like money you know money may be backed by the government but if it is stolen you are still screwed so that is the challenge with uh, bitcoin getting hacked the exchanges are getting better uh, the early days the wild west of the bitcoin world the exchanges were much easier to hack today they are much harder
No, but there was a uh, Shanky. There was a recent news about a wormhole, you know, getting hacked and some three hundred million uh, dollars of Ethereum coins getting stolen. So maybe you can. So that uh, actually didn't get stolen. Ethereum he created a contract, which the Ethereum rules out, but ah. which ended up profiting only him. And so okay. there was a big debate as to whether to close that hole or not. And Ethereum actually forked out. One did one branch did not close the hole, saying principles. And the other the rule is a rule if it has a loophole, too bad. Whereas the other branch closed the hole and refused the guy access. But actually, the it's still there. I mean, the the coins are still held in a contract which neither party has accessed. The, ah, the okay. party that owns it has also not accessed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, in fact, they have offered a few million dollars to those guys yeah. to return it. Close out the like, hole. I mean, without closing the hole, to close out the contract. So um, uh, there was one question which I can't, uh, you know, not ask you, uh, Shanky, which is, you know, a passion for cycling and, uh, you know, how you use that, you know, uh, when when the pandemic hit, you know, to to engage the people and all that. So tell us a quick story about it. We are like just at the end of the hour, and I still have my rapid fire round and 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 my reverse question to go. Yeah, cycling. I've been passionate about cycling for a very long time. I mean, I, uh, I've cycled all over Bombay since I moved to Bombay, which was 96 or so. And I used to, all those days, have an old Atlas bicycle and things like that. And so, subsequently, you know, as my wealth increased, my bicycle increased. I mean, the quality of my bicycle increased. But, uh, you know, main thing about cycling is it's, uh, it's partly endurance when you do really long distances. And partly it's a meditation. You're on a cycle, nobody else can talk to you. While you're cycling, it's hard to talk to anybody and it's hard for anybody to talk to you. So, you know, you're with your own thoughts, you see scenery, it's a great way to travel. I've cycled in lots of cities in the world. It's a great way to see a city. It's one of the best ways, in fact, to see a city. It's faster than walking, which is probably the best way, but too slow. And it is much easier than a car. So, therefore, I've kept cycling and, you know, we've been doing cyclothons. Now, there's a large group of cyclists, many of whom are more much more regular than I am. And I cycle with them. We go on these expeditions. RBL itself has a very large group of cyclists. RBL has been holding cyclothons since before I joined. And uh, they themselves have a very large group of cyclists, which has grown significantly bigger in the pandemic. Because people started cycling everywhere. And uh, so that group also, we spend a lot of time doing these expeditions. So uh, tell me, uh, you know, what are your, maybe the longest or the toughest to three expeditions? So the toughest was Manali to Leh. Because, uh, you know, all said and done, yes, you prepare, you practice this, that. But nothing really prepares you for Himalayas. Especially in yeah. Bombay. You climb Pali Hill 10 times and you think Himalayas are gaya, But you realize when you go to the Himalayas, that a difference. Hai. So that is one big thing. Plus the oxygen thing, you know, uh, it's very thin air. So even though you're going up slowly and you won't get uh, oxygen sickness, you nevertheless go out of breath very easily. So you don't get sick. But, you know, people will walk past you. The local parties will walk past you while you're trying to, you know, go on a cycle. Thing like that. So that is that was one of the toughest rides I did. The other tough ride I did was the tour of Nilgiris, which is because it's really, really steep. You see, Banali yeah, is not so steep. It's low oxygen, but the roads are meant, even cars require oxygen, right? So the roads are meant to for cars to go at 3%, 2% gradient. Whereas in uh, Toro Nilgiris, three times, four times that, 10%, 12% gradient. So it's really steep. 
even though there's no oxygen problem there there your lungs don't hit you but your thighs hit you <laughs> that's right that's right okay so uh, you know just on that you know when i was going for uh, kalash mansarovar trek you know i used to every day i used to do this my in my building i used to go up 15 floors uh, of stairs up and down and i thought I, i was ready for the trek and you're right you know the when the himalayas hit you they are nothing like those 15 floor twice a day it's a very different experience so let me uh, jump on to the rapid fire round so um, who's an inspiring leader for you and why so globally i find uh, both jeff bezos and elon musk very inspiring and steve jobs actually my biggest inspiration and a lot of my examples come from steve jobs even though he uh, you know he had very rocky periods as well but in terms of changing the world in terms of introducing new thoughts and being able to get people to adopt them and i think elon musk is doing something similar he takes an idea he rolls it out and he gets people to adopt it in the same with jeff bezos so these three guys i really admire for this ability to take a world changing big leap of an idea and then persuading the world to match that idea and follow with it yeah and you know, and, 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 and yeah yeah no no so, that 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 that's great and i think i think the common thing between the between all the three is that uh they're not afraid to be alone standing behind the idea and keep pushing it no so actually lots of people stand behind an idea alone the extra genius is that they are able to make a whole army follow them absolutely uh, you know the guy for instance the inventor of tires you know bridgestone is the guy who invented tires but bridgestone tires are actually named after bridgestone there's nothing to do with the person bridgestone it's a japanese company that honored the founder named bridgestone that invented tires and never got anybody to adopt him so he died unknown lots of people like that you know they invent things they have world changing ideas but they themselves are unable to generate the momentum behind the idea and in some cases the idea itself dies out without too much uh, you know impact whereas yeah. jeff bezos uh, elon musk and uh, steve jobs steve jobs in multiple industries has able has been able to transform the way the industry works and yeah. that's quite inspirational i probably don't have any chance of doing that but we'll see yeah. whatever scale you can but do it I, you do it yeah i i i read steve jobs biography and uh, yeah. you know i was like really amazed at the way he stood up against everybody else uh, you know for design for consumer and for experience amazing okay so let's move on uh, shanky uh, shanky what what was the most hilarious incident in working life hilarious to aise bahut tha you know probably the most hilarious is i landed up with the wrong week for my santa claus when i was in ibm i was supposed to be santa claus you know i was quite fat i'm still a little bit chubby but i was much chubbier in those days and i was therefore a good santa claus first year i was i did very well so second year they said we are throwing this big party on a launch and this that and you please land up and be santa claus and you are the star of the show and this that and i landed up one week late <laughs> how come <laughs> so it was a total tragedy somebody else got to be santa claus and you know they were so pissed off they didn't tell me also so i landed up the next week and i'm calling somebody and this guy is so pissed off saying you know what is this it already happened and we were in deep shit and we found another santa claus and all that and now you come i don't know anyway okay okay that was probably the most so, you know hilarious people didn't let me forget it for 10 years after that <laughs> Okay, okay. I'm sure. I'm sure you're known amongst your IBM colleagues still as 
as that Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. So, so thank, yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, to all my audience and as well as to you, Shanky, uh, I'm using Geo uh, connection in uh, Mumbai, and I think there's a big and wide outage of Geo, including my broadband. So right now I'm running on uh, my mobile hotspot. And I think everyone around is running on that only because this building was all geo. So there may be a bit of a lag. But let me uh, quickly go on to the next question, which is you know, talk, talk, talk to audience about your biggest failure. So I had a couple of failures, you know, one, one very big failure in NSC, we signed this contract with NASDAQ for our settlement system. And uh, it was a complex contract and we spent a lot of time signing it. And it was quite the win when it was signed. The head of NASDAQ came down, shook hands with us. We had a global partnership, this, that. But it turned out to be a very bad decision, partly because we underestimated the uh, regulatory environment in India. We, we already knew it was coming. We just didn't know that it was so different. And we should have anticipated because by then the outlines actually were already available to us. The fact is India operates quite differently from the rest of the world in uh, in uh, in the settlement side and therefore we should not actually have been looking for a product because products tend to operate on commonalities if you are operating quite differently then and we you know we burned through quite a bit of money before we realized it so that was probably my biggest failure and uh, you know there have been other implementation failures where we thought something would be achieved in this time frame you know i've had some successes achieving things fast but i've also had some successes where uh, failures where implementation didn't happen for you know sometimes years on it yeah no and i think you know with your philosophy of adopting things early sometimes you can be early to uh, a concept where you know people are not ready it has happened with me as well yeah so uh shanky there's a rapid fire question from the audience this is uh jayant ghoj asking you the question what is the one thing that's dear to you which you which is not found in the social world Okay, I'm not sure what the social world means, but... Maybe um, the social networking world. Okay, so I, you know, I, uh, I like reading a lot. Nowadays, of course, I've widened my reading to audio as well, audio books and podcasts. And I generally don't talk about it in the social world, but I like reading a lot. I do a lot of reading. And uh, now, as I said, I've expanded it to audios. So even when I'm not reading, I'm reading. Okay, okay. So maybe let me take the last you know question and this is something which a lot of people are curious about from the cios you know there's always this bit of a business and it divide and you know like when you're talking of like you know being early adopter to technology how do you convince the fellow cxos so how do you engage your uh, fellow cxos in building those trusted partnerships so the first thing is you know you have to focus on the outcome technology we tend to get excited by the technology but as somebody you know i learned this early on because you know, even in the IBM world, when I was interacting with CIOs, we would often tell them, this is the great, latest and greatest thing in IBM, and why don't we just buy it? And they would say, but you know, you realize there's no value for me in this. It's high risk, but low reward. Why would I do it? And so that's when I started realizing that if you really want somebody to buy something, you must understand why, what is going to benefit him. Otherwise, if it's a pure technology implementation, why would he do it? If it's not going to improve his life, it's like buying a better bicycle, but not cycling. So, so therefore, the first thing to make a case is for you itself to understand what the value is. If I'm going on cloud, how will the business see better results? Or what better results will the business see? And then focusing on making sure that after the move, that results are indeed achieved. 
or it will be called a failed project regardless of how technically good it is so uh, no i think i think i think great one which is like you know if you want to, if you want somebody to uh, trust you then you have to talk their language you have to solve their pain you have to you have to be yeah. part of their aspiration so looks like the audience has got a gotten a liking to uh, you know this rapid fire round and i'm getting a lot of audience uh, rapid fires so let me play along with you guys uh, my audience okay so uh, here is one from joseph kiran kumar uh, if you were not a cio what would you have been so you know in long term career if i were not a, a technology guy i would probably I had the choice many years ago when I joined IIT. I probably would have been an architect. I would have loved to be an architect. You wow. know, I do a lot of uh, you know, art and visual design and all that, and I like buildings. I, you know, some of my wingmates were architects, so I followed the profession very closely. It's no longer possible for me to be architect because architect is a, you know, a full-fledged profession by itself. But in those days, I should, I, I always think maybe I should have taken that branch. and i would have enjoyed awesome. it as well awesome so there's another in the recent time i'll be an academic now my choice between cio and academic i will you know that's probably my next aim if i stop being cio i'll probably go being go be an academic or some sort either a teacher or a student okay awesome awesome so uh, here's the next one for you what is the movie or song that inspires you always and is a fallback for you shanti so one song that always plays in my head is ajit pasta hai Because it seems to describe pretty much every situation. Which song, sorry? Aji Dasta hai ye. Aji Dasta, Dasta, Dasta hai ye. Kahan shuru, kahan khatam? Ye manzil hai kaun thi? Na wo samajh sake hai hum. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just just one last one. I'll pick up the second question of this. Uh, have you ever thought of becoming a complete business person like a CEO from a CIO? So I was a CEO for a while, and uh, you know. I was uh, a business person for two stints. One is my own startup, which I co-founded with some others, and one was the CEO of uh, Future Bazaar. It is a very attractive role, and uh, but it's a very high-stress role as well. So I don't know if today I would try being a CEO again, even of a startup. But uh, I did enjoy it, and it did give me a very good insight as to you know how to run a business, what matters to a business. what does not matter to a business absolutely yeah okay so shanki we are towards the very end of it so i've been asking you all the questions so you know i call it the revenge round so you get to ask me a question in in revenge of whatever i've been asking you so i've always wondered what motivates you to do these chats because there's a lot of effort right and you al- already had a fairly successful career you hit the peak of your career what motivates you to do this because it's this is not a casual Thing. you know you put a lot of effort and organization and um so uh, shanki uh, uh, that's a great question see actually it is started it is started like you know just like that you know so my linkedin uh, engagement has been a lot driven by you know audience engagements uh, you know so i started writing and you know like people loved it and then i kept on doing it then somebody said why don't you post videos i started posting videos again you know great response then somebody said why don't you start a live chat and uh, i applied to linkedin and they said do early because linkedin takes about 2 3 months to approve uh, you know a live uh, this thing but you know mine came pretty early and i was not ready so i sat on it for 3 uh, months i mean what should i do like you know why should i go live is it like just for the fun of it 
And uh, this whole thing was baking in my mind as to, you know, what should be the topic and what should be a topic which can be sustained. And then one of the things that kept coming back to me was the business value of IT because I came from business, you know, first seven years in business, then, you know, as a technology business manager, managing technology for another seven years. And then I saw that I had almost nearly 100% track record in, uh, in successful, uh, you know, in getting the juice out of technology. In fact, quite a few programs, you know, which I inherited as, a, as almost dying programs, which I revived. And actually, there was a clarity chat session I took on, like, you know, reviving uh, debt programs. And then when I looked at this research happening that, you know, globally, more than 70% programs uh, don't deliver their ROI. Vijay Ramchandran's research, 83% of the program fail. I thought that there may be an, there may be a, uh, you know, an opportunity to contribute uh, to the technology ecosystem because I also think that, you know, somewhere these questions are not being discussed in the, in the loads and loads of IT conferences that happen. We talk about technology, but we don't talk about the ROI from technology. So once that whole thing got crystallized, you know, then I started building that presentation. Now I have to involve my fellow CIO. So, you know, they also need to connect to that agenda. So that's when I developed that five slide presentation as to, you know, what are those four things which make it very complex and, uh, you know, and, and, and sort of explains the why only 17%. I think once that got crystallized that, you know, that purpose gives you that conviction and that energy to go on, uh, is you guys attending and engaging, uh, in the clarity chats, asking all those insightful questions. And, uh, for all of you who are watching the recorded version. I appreciate, uh, we appreciate, uh, you know, you watching the recorded version as well. And uh, please ask your questions. We keep watching them and like, you know, we'll take them later in some solo chats when I get an opportunity. And uh, thank you, Shanky, so much for joining me on Clarity Chat today. Thank you for calling me. Wow, that was an insightful discussion with Shanky. I loved it and I hope you loved it too. Do subscribe to Clarity Chat podcast available on all major podcasting platforms. In our next podcast, I will host Arvind Shiv Ramakrishnan, CIO of Apollo Hospitals and a seasoned healthcare CIO. Watch out for our next Clarity Chat podcast with Arvind.